Okay, everyone. Um, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, this is an event joint hosted by the LSE's International Drug Policy Unit and the LSE US Centre. Um, my name is John Collins. I'm Executive Director of the International Drug Policy Unit at the LSE. I'm also a fellow at the LSE's US Centre. Why I'm out of breath is I had to run back and get the banner for this event. Um, I'm also Editor-in-Chief. I'm going to use this opportunity to plug it of the new Journal of Illicit Economies and Development here at LSE. This is an open access journal supported by LSE Press. So if you haven't heard of it and you're interested in this topic, I would highly recommend having a look online. Um, I'm going to come to our speakers in a moment, but I just want to give a quick overview of why we're here, which I, th I think we all know. But hands up here who's heard of the US overdose crisis. Right. <laughs> Amazing if you were here and you hadn't heard of it. Who here has been directly affected by the US opioid crisis? Okay, so a number of hands. Um, I think um, we, we know that if this was an event being held in the U.S., there would be an awful lot more hands. I think pretty much um, there's very few pe people or families that haven't been in some way touched by this crisis. Um, in between 1999 and 2017, uh, the Centers for Disease Control estimated that about 700,000 people died of an overdose in the United States. In 2017 alone, I believe it was 70,000. Now, Peter will correct me if I'm wrong in any of those figures or if he challenges any of those figures. Um, of those, about 68% involved illicit or illicit opioid. So I think one of the things that's going to come out tonight is that we, we often call it the opioid crisis, but we've specifically referred to it as the overdose crisis, and that's one of the reasons, is that it's, it's a polydrug crisis in many ways. Um, it also, I think, breaks some of that supply determinism that we face in this issue, which is we, 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 we view ourselves as almost helpless in the, fa in, in the onslaught of supply, when actually there is an awful lot of government policy and government interventions which can, which can improve this topic. So our focus tonight is uh, how did the situation emerge? What lessons can we learn from the opioid crisis in the U.S.? Uh, how can we avoid repeating past policy mistakes? I would include the war on drugs as, as one big example of that. Um, and, and, and ultimately, what policies can help overcome the, the crisis? So to answer these questions, we have a really stellar panel tonight. Um, first up, we have Professor Peter Reuter. Um, and he's an academic in this field who frankly needs no introduction. Um, He's widely credited, I think, with establishing or helping to establish, if you want to be modest, um, the, the field of modern drug policy studies. Um, I would say as an aspiring academic or an, or an earlier career academic in this field, um, it can be both fr frustrating and awe-inspiring when, when you think of a topic and you discover that Professor Reuter has already written on it extensively and did so <laughs> 10 years ago. He is a professor in the School of Public Policy in the Department of Criminology at the University of Maryland. And in recognition of his work in this field, he was co-awarded the 2019 Stockholm Prize in Criminology. And just to say, as someone in this field, this was, this was a great honor for Professor Reuter, but it was a great honor, I think, for the entire drug policy field, because his work and his recognition of his work really, I think, represent an apotheosis and the development of this field and a maturation of this field. So I think the Stockholm Prize really was a, a recognition of that fact. He served as, on a number of initiatives here at the LSE, including our own expert group on the economics of drug policy, and it is a real pleasure to have him as one of our keynotes here tonight. Next up, we have Professor Michelle Kazachkin. Another individual who really needs no introduction, I think. He is, he's here in his role as commissioner of the global, on the Global Commission on Drug Policy. He is widely known and, and incredibly respected for his work on international AIDS policy and his advocacy on behalf of people who use drugs in marginalized communities. From 2007 to 2012, 
He was director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. And in 2012, he was appointed as United Nations Special Envoy for HIV AIDS in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. He's a senior fellow with the Global Health Program of the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva currently, and among many other roles, I believe. We then have uh, Ms. Denise Tomasini-Yoshi. She's a division director with the Open Society Foundation's Public Health Program. She leads a program's work on, on health, law, and equality around the globe. She was previously the deputy director of the Open Society International Harm Reduction Development Program, which supports the health and human rights of people who use drugs around the world. She has an MA in International Affairs from Columbia University and a JD from Columbia University Law School. And then finally, we have Dr. Catherine Pettis. She's Advocacy Officer for Palliative Care at the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care. She holds a PhD in Political Theory from Columbia University and a Master's in Health Law from the University of San Diego. Her PhD dissertation appeared as a book, Felony Disenfranchisement in America, which is currently in its second edition with SUNY, I believe, SUNY Press. Um, and, and her master's thesis studied the interface between international law and access to internationally controlled essential medicines for palliative care. So another vital issue when we look at this issue of the overdose crisis and, and, and access to opiates more generally. So with that said, I'm going to hand over to our first speaker, which is Professor Peter Reuter. Thank you very much. I hope some slides will go up, otherwise I will be speechless. Uh, yes? Press the button, it should. There it is, indeed. So, I will present today, in very summary form, uh, a major study conducted by a group at RAND, of which I was one, one member, uh, entitled The Future of Fentanyl, uh, which is about synthetic opioids in North America. I'll talk mostly about the U.S., but I'll talk a little bit about it. And as all of you know, we have had th sort of three opioid crises uh, over the last uh, 20 years. The first is associated with prescription opioids, and particularly OxyContin and the firm uh, Purdue Pharma. Um, and there we saw overprescribing as a result both of the capture of the regulatory agency by Purdue and also Purdue's effective sort of corralling of the medical profession into believing uh, some wildly overstated claims about the effectiveness of, of opioids as painkillers. Um, as the number of overdose deaths rose, states started to implement uh, more effective uh, prescription controls. And starting in 2010, you see a leveling out of the overdose death rates associated with prescription opioids and an increase in uh, heroin overdose deaths. And it's, you know, there is considerable evidence that the increase in heroin overdose represented a switch by prescription opioid users uh, to heroin as a result of the tighter controls. And then in 2014, essentially out of the blue, there was a, a dramatic increase in the number of overdose deaths associated with prescription opioids, in particular fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. And those stories are captured in this, uh, in this figure. Um, here you see the uh, figure for synthetic opioids, a very low number through 2010, and those were basically fentanyl overdoses resulting from 
diversion of fentanyl patches. And starting in 2013, but really 2014, sorry, really 2014, you see an increase in fentanyl overdoses that now are illicitly manufactured uh, uh, fentanyl. And we'll come back to why it started in 2014. And you see the uh, prescription opioid uh, deaths rising through 2010 and then essentially leveling off. I'll explain this particular increase later. Uh, and heroin overdoses, uh, the, this line, go up very substantially after 2010 and then start leveling out around 2014. So, so it looks like a national problem. But it is far from nationwide. One of the most important observations and one of the sort of sources of understanding of, of, of the fentanyl market come from realizing just how regional this is. Let me first of all note that um, states that are coded here in gray are states for which the quality of the data is too low for us to estimate, for the CDC to estimate the, opio uh, the opioid overdose rate. So, so they, we simply can't uh, analyze those. So the pr problem started in the Northeast and in Appalachia and it remains in the northeast Appalachia, but now very much larger. To give you a sense of the difference, so in the states that have the highest overdose death rates, Ohio and West Virginia, we're talking about overdose death rates of more than 25 per 100,000, whereas in uh, the uh, western states, we're talking about overdose death rates of less than two per 100,000, so there's an order of magnitude. And so one of the great mysteries is why, um, why, it is, why it has emerged now and why it is still regional. Let me deal with why now. So the conditions seem very ripe for 2013. Fentanyl been synthesized a long time ago. We've had prior outbreaks of illicitly produced fentanyl. I'll say a little bit about them uh, later. The critical thing seems to have been the development of simplified synthesis methods. And my colleague, Bryce Pardot, um, is the one who sort of tracked this down. And you can see the dissemination on the web of these new methods starting around 2012. Uh, what I think, I, I believe this is correct, but I'm not absolutely sure. I believe this was developed uh, with federal that these new methods of synthesis were developed by federal funds uh, in the National Energy Labs. And I have no explanation about why that's the case, but it is uh, interesting that that should be so. Um, so that the timing, we think, is related largely to the development of these new synthesis methods that allow production by people much less skilled than those that were producing it before essentially moving from chemists to cooks. Um, and so the outbreak this time is different from, from the previous ones. Previous ones were generally localized, generally short, less than none lasted less than uh, more than three years. They involve very few analogs, um, mostly domestic labs, whereas now it is produced uh, primarily from China. Mexico is involved, but essentially importing precursors from uh, China and mixing in, in Mexico. 
Um, the distribution is now widely, so there are many organizations involved in it, and whereas in the past it was sold exclusively mixed with heroin, now it shows up both in heroin and prescription pills, and maybe also in cocaine uh, and other um, uh, stimulants. There's a controversy about that, which I'll take, be happy to talk about in question time. The spread of fentanyl and the explanation, maybe, for its regional character is that this is not a new epidemic of opioid use. This is a change in the composition of what is sold largely as heroin or as counterfeit prescription opioids. Users are not asking for fentanyl. Most of them want to avoid it. There is some demand for fentanyl, but mostly it is simply a substitution by dealers because it is so much cheaper for them to acquire. And here's a, a, a sort of a very simplified comparison in terms of the cost for the dealer of acquiring fentanyl as compared to, to heroin. And we, what MEDD stands for, morphine equivalent daily dose. Actually, no, I think it's just morphine equivalent dose. And I'll show the Serbia second D there. And fentanyl is less than 1% as expensive in morphine equivalent doses for the dealer at the wholesale level. And so one of the, so there's no mystery as to why dealers like fentanyl. But then it obviously raises the question, why is it only in certain parts of the country? So one simple explanation is, ah, black tar. So the heroin market in the US is divided in two. In the east, basically east of the Mississippi, though I think that's a sort of fictitious division. Um, east of the Mississippi, you have white heroin coming from Mexico. Uh, to your right and the west, um, it is black tar heroin. And it is thought, folk wisdom is, that you can't mix fentanyl with black tar. Now, you think for a moment and say, surely that cannot be a major scientific breakthrough to mix fentanyl with black tar. And in fact, people who are, know the, the uh, science better than I say, it is no problem to do that. But it is as a matter of observation that black tar so far has not been mixed with, with fentanyl. But even within areas that have white heroin, you have many which have not, in fact, um, uh, have, have not seen the arrival of, of fentanyl. And the question is, what's wrong with those dealers? Why aren't they sort of responding to a strong market signal? It is not difficult to obtain fentanyl. Any of you can go on the web and find Chinese sites um, which will sell you fentanyl. Actually, I do not know if they'll deliver in the UK. I shouldn't say. I, I can say this to audiences in the US. Anyone can go on the web and order a kilo of fentanyl uh, for less than $5,000 uh, with a very high likelihood that it will actually be delivered. And that is, undercover work suggests that they are quite reliable suppliers. Um, so 
the sort of central question of interest for research purposes is why has this stayed so concentrated? Why has it not spread elsewhere? And my focus is primarily on why it has not spread in the US, but in taking the question of my title seriously, you can ask the same question internationally. Why is the UK, which is well, I mean, even after Brexit probably, still well connected to China in terms of commerce and uh, any other kind of communication, why have dealers in this country not start to import fentanyl. One other country has a fentanyl problem, and that is, uh, well, sorry, two other countries have. One is Estonia, which is kind of an exotica in this. So back when after the, there was a heroin shortage in, the US, in, in Europe, following the uh, Taliban uh, prohibition on uh, opium production in 2001, um, the Estonian mar uh, opioid market, illegal opioid market, transitioned to fentanyl, fentanyl supplied from, from St. Petersburg. Curious, no evidence that St. Petersburg has a fentanyl problem. Tiny market in, in, in uh, Estonia, but uh, there's good documentation that Estonia has been a fentanyl market for 15 years or more and has had very high overdose rates as a, as a consequence. But it's sort of, you know, it's hard to make, to relate this to any other experience. Um, it stands as an exotica. That was its response to the heroin shortage of the early part of the last decade. Uh, other countries had other responses, for example, I think it is uh, Latvia, uh, no, um, I think it was, no, Finland became a buprenorphine market, for example, um, and, and so this just stands out, as I say, as an exotica. Um, Canada is the other country which has been hit badly by fentanyl, and the timing is exactly the timing of the US, and the problem is much worse in British Columbia and Alberta than it is in the rest of the country. The differences between high and low are not as great as in the US, but it is very much worse in, in uh, British Columbia than it is in, in the rest of the country. So again, you have the question, so why is it that these two markets, that, that certain parts of the US and British Columbia have been so badly hit, and heroin dealers in other parts of these two countries have not uh, incorporated this? One thing that links Canada and the US is prescription opioid problems. That is, US and Canada both went through the same prescription opioid epidemic uh, in the previous, in the period of 2000-2010, extend a little beyond that. But then it's very hard to describe the mechanism which links that specific problem to the arrival of fentanyl. One story would be, ah, both in Canada and in the US, the prescription opioid market tightened, that is the regulators cracked down in both countries, and that created a new demand for heroin, and that led to the introduction of fentanyl. But there's no sign that in Canada there was any shortage of, of heroin that would have led suppliers at that time to seek something new. There was no spike in, in heroin prices, 
and there's no evidence of any interruption to supplies otherwise. I, it's complicated, but I'd make the same argument about the, uh, about the US, that there really wasn't a, um, uh, any uh, interruption in the heroin supply to suggest that there was a uh, dealer's need to seek out a new, um, a new source of, of opioids. So we're left with this puzzle that the problem has occurred in jurisdictions which have had a prescription opioid, countries which have a prescription opioid problem, but we can't figure out what the link is. And so, assuming I've used up my time, um, I'll end by saying um, the, the question for the UK is why are heroin dealers here either so ethical or so uninterested in profit? Doesn't get quite the same laugh, but um, I mean, you know, there is no story that I know of that makes sense of this. And if we can't tell a story that makes sense of this in the long run, then I think in the long run, the UK may have a fentanyl problem too. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, John, for the introduction, and good evening, uh, everyone. I'm speaking here tonight uh, in my capacity as a member of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, and on this first slide, I'm showing the n names of the members of our commission. You'll recognize a number of former heads of states, government, UN agencies. Um, we call ourselves sort of global citizens that um, have committed together to advocate for more human rights, health-based, evidence-based uh, drug policies across the world. Now, what I'd like to do now, uh, and following Peter, is to uh, make a few observations uh, on the uh, epidemic of overdose deaths. So here I am, a doctor, a physician, an AIDS physician, as you heard, talking about an epidemic with high rates of deaths, but an epidemic that is not due to a bacterium or a virus, an epidemic that is due to poor public policies, and also to what we call social and structural determinants of health. And acknowledging that, that is acknowledging these determinants, uh, imply that the response to the epidemic is far beyond the medical response. It has to be social, economic, and, and political. My second uh, observation is that as epidemics seen by us physicians, this is an epidemic that is expanding. That's the definition of an epidemic. But that, that is also evolving and adapting. And we heard that from, from Peter as we switched in the US or parts of the US uh, from prescription drugs and heroin to now uh, synthetic drugs and, and fentanyl. 
So originally, eight years ago, the epidemic of overdose deaths and the epidemic of overdose because of prescription drugs and, and heroin were basically overlapping. Um, there was no divergence. The divergence is, is seen, has been seen in the last three, four years. Eight years ago, or 10, 12 years ago, the opioid crisis, was it's called the opioid crisis in the U.S., spurred by a broad expansion of medical use uh, of opioids. It, become, it became, uh, became, began actually in the 90s um, as a response to the undertreatment of pain, but soon, as you know, it became fueled by overprescription by physicians and also exploited by the unethical behavior of pharmaceutical companies. Then the rise uh, in supply fed high levels of diversion uh, among economically stressed and vulnerable people. And so that was the shift to, to, to heroin. Initial, the initial reaction of the authorities in the US was to limit prescriptions. But the reduced supply of prescription op opioids drove an important minority of people to seek for cheaper um, and more accessible uh, street heroin, and that induced um, dependence on, on heroin. This is still not gone. Uh, while the uh, CDC has actually walked away from its initial guidelines recommending prescriptions to stay under 100 milligrams daily morphine equivalent, many insurance companies in the U.S. have instituted limits and some state governments have also proposed forced tapers for those on Medicaid that receive opioids for other than end-of-life pain. And so the result is still forcing people to go into uh, street supply of heroin that is progressively, and in some regions particularly, as, as we heard, um, now moving to um, the synthetic fentanyl and, and fentanyl derivatives. Um, Going back to the prescription uh, opioid epidemic, let me say that media and government attention uh, originally focused primarily on, on the supply through doctors. And the fact that most of the addictions started from diverted supplies was uh, largely uh, ignored. And so was ignored uh, the fact that uh, the role of economic upheaval of unemployment, inequality, and, and other sources of, let's call it, social despair in, in increasing the risk of addiction and decreasing the odds of recovery. Um, the next slide shows the abrupt increase. It's a slide similar to Peter's, but I made the, here the uh, ordinate is higher than the abscissa, so it looks more tragic, but the data are very similar. Um, I was talking about the despair of people, and I'm showing this slide. I won't go into the detail, but it's one of several studies that has shown how a chronic use of prescription opioids in the U.S. was correlated with the support to Trump, 
uh, in the 2016 uh, election. As you can see, uh, Republican presidential vote, the fifth or the yeah, fifth line, I guess. It's a P001, um, which really underscores the cultural, uh, economic, and, and so environmental social factors associated with the epidemic. As we heard, the epidemic has now changed, uh, and the growth of the overdose death is really diverging from that of prescription opioids as the largest number of cases and fastest growing deaths are actually uh, resulting from illicitly manufactured fentanyl. So even if today the opioid epidemic, prescription epidemic was to stop, uh, that would not stop the uh, overdose um, death epidemic. And the dynamics of that is shown on the left part of the slide. Again, fairly similar to what you saw before. And you can see in blue the increase uh, in between 1999 and 2016 of deaths resulting from prescription opioids. And then in the red um, from heroin that followed the prescription opioids. And then in brown and going, or light brown and going up, the synthetic opioids. So that's what I meant by saying it's an epidemic that is evolving and adapting. My um, fourth um, observation is that while there is consensus, expert consensus, and evidence of what works, uh, the response so far in the U.S. remains uh, inadequate. The medical response and the non-medical response. The medical response, health systems in the U.S. were, also, of course, totally unprepared to face such an epidemic. While we know that what we call opioid substitutive therapy and what I would like to call agonist maintenance therapy um, is the most effective treatment of heroin dependence and should be actually offered to all people dependent on prescription uh, opioids. Treatment uh, that are currently in place in, in the US uh, is still dominated by ideology and by abstinence-focused programs that are totally ineffective and uh, irrelevant. And there's even a prejudice against OST, or agonist maintenance therapy, as treatment of, of dependence, including in the medical community. And sadly, that translates into lack of treatment for many of those in need across the US. And so we may question even where will the funds that the government has put in place as, as a response or the very large funds that will come from settlements with manufacturers, with Purdue and others, of prescribed opioids, will that actually answer the question of access to treatment? I'm not too positive about that, uh, since many states are favoring other therapeutic approaches, including what we call opioid blockade with naltrexone, 
or um, drug-free treatment, which requires a detox and which to me is totally against the WHO standard recommendations. And we know that people who have been off uh, opioids, when they come back to op opioids, are at very, very high risk of, of overdose. The non-medical response has also failed uh, since in the U.S. criminalization of drug possession, of drug use, uh, is still uh, very high on the agenda, and incarceration is the response. Uh, and that is an essential factor also driving the epidemic. Uh, as much as the inadequate health care and as much as uh, overprescription in driving overdose deaths. So ideologically driven prohibition-based law enforcement continues to guide U.S. drug policy. And we in the Global Commission oppose that very much. So um, some of the root causes uh, of the problem that I've discussed on the root cause of demand, what I call here existential and economic despair of supply, poor regulation of markets and trade that allowed for overprescription, and under-response, limited access to health care, no addiction treatment, ideological influence on drug policy, non-medical approach to addiction treatment, and somewhere, because the funding so far is so limited, an ideology with the current administration of limited government spending on social programs. So Peter mentioned about um, Europe, uh, I don't think, and maybe that's oversimplifying, that Europe will face an opioid prescription uh, epidemic because Europe regulates properly the system. Um, and as you can see so far, there is a drastic difference in national deaths, uh, overdose rates in, in Europe and in, in the U.S. However, and also as pointed out by Peter, I don't think uh, Europe is immune from a fentanyl uh, epidemic. And so we have to prepare for that, just as we prepare for other uh, epidemics. Um, so what do we have to do? In the short term, we need to continue in the U.S. to address the emergency that is focused on ensuring broad availability of naloxone, uh, which, as you know, is the drug that treats, uh, pre prevents overdose deaths, focus on treating dependence, and focus also on having a, a comprehensive harm reduction program. And that is currently lacking in the U.S. And the comprehensive harm reduction program is not only uh, opioid agonist maintenance therapy and needle and syringe programs. It's also supervised injection facilities that have not yet been established in the U.S. It's also, as we have in Switzerland, heroin-assisted, and in the U.K. to a small extent, heroin-assisted therapy for patients who are not doing well on methadone. It is also drug checking and broad availability of naloxone, and not in hospitals, 
but where the people are. So with mobile units for drug checking to detect ingredients of what is sold as heroin or as Peter alluded to also now as, as cocaine. Um, given use of stimulants and opioids together and the presence of fentanyl in New York and, and Ohio over those deaths involving cocaine and fentanyl are now outnumbering those with fentanyl and heroin. So it's essential not to restrict focus to opioid users and to recognize that supervised injection rooms may actually not be sufficient themselves if there is a switch from heroin fentanyl to cocaine uh, fentanyl. There were a number of recommendations in the US by the so-called Chris Christie Commission a few years ago. Uh, I won't go into the detail unless we, it comes to the, in the discussion, but we believe that uh, that commission in its uh, recommendation actually fell short of a number of, of needed interventions so, such as those shown on this slide. It also uh, did not address, of course, the broader problem uh, of, the, uh, of, of the roots of, 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 of disease. So as we face the emergency, we also need to work hard on decriminalization and decriminalization of all drugs, which uh, is absolutely needed for people to actually uh, not be afraid of coming to services and using services. Um, and maybe we also need to learn from other uh, health crisis. I actually see some analogies. Uh, I'm biased in the way I think, but with the antibiotic issue and the AMR, because here we deal with uh, the fact that we need to ensure access, but we need to prevent um, overuse. I see analogies with big disasters in the need for a country to coordinate action, which the U.S hasn't done so far properly uh, and act multi-sectorally. And I see some analogies uh, with the HIV AIDS epidemic and I think we should take some lessons from there because patterns of illness and death in these overdose death epidemics uh, un have underlying social vulnerabilities just as HIV AIDS and maybe the, the concept of concerted public action with the public sector and the civil society is something that we should learn from AIDS and, and apply here to responses that so far in the US uh, basically only come from government. So uh, in short, um, it's an extremely serious health crisis that is growing, evolving, and as I said, adapting. Understanding the problem requires taking medical, social, economic, and political perspectives. The problem is complex and adaptive, so it cannot be addressed, sorry for the typo, with simple or single measures. There is evidence and expert consensus of what works, but the response is far inadequate. So this is why our message as Global Commission uh, is to continue to advocate 
for what we call the five pathways to, to drug policies that work, but I'll just uh, mention three. The first is that drug policies should always prioritize the safeguarding of people's health and safety. If your legislation uh, is not supporting health first, change the legislation rather than keep policies that harm the people. And that means a fundamental reorientation of policies and resources uh, from the failing punitive approaches that are currently in place to health and social interventions. The second is ending the criminalization of people who use drugs. Law that criminalize people who use drugs are ineffective and harmful. And so far from this the stated uh, intention of protecting public safety, they actually undermine uh, safety. And here we have a problem, because the world is polarized and there are deep-seated schisms uh, in international debates on drug policy. Despite renewed commitment last March 2019 in the so-called ministerial declaration at the UN summit in Vienna, there is increasing, and we see on the one side, an increasing acknowledgement that uh, current drug control regimens are, are harmful and that there's a need to pursue options such as decriminalization of use and possession for personal use. And a number of countries are moving towards that direction. And yet, at the same time, other countries are actually moving moving in the very opposite direction, redoubling efforts to eradicate drug use through punitive approaches with harm, harmful consequences on, on health and, and human rights. And the third and last pathway I'd like to just underline is that in the longer term, we need to end prohibition. And we need to revisit the current principles of international drug control and prohibition move towards legal regulation of currently illicit substances. Because the demand for drugs exists and will remain. And if that demand is not met uh, through um, legal means, uh, government-controlled uh, drugs, uh, then it will be supplied by an illegal market as it is now with all of its negative consequences, including the circulation of adulterated drugs, as we heard about fentanyl and fentanyl derivatives. Um, and we will continue to see HIV epidemics, hepatitis epidemics, overdose deaths, incarceration, uh, and criminalization preventing people from seeking treatment, health, and support. Accepting this reality is, I believe, part of responsible governance. Dealing with the world as it is, not uh, as it would be with uh, morally or ideologically driven, utterly impractical and ultimately counterproductive attempts to create a so-called drug-free world. So ending prohibition is the ultimate goal of drug policy reform. I hope you will all support that, that, that movement because it's time really to transform the international conversation away from prohibition 
to a conversation that would emphasize safe, safety, rights, health, uh, equity, and development. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, so, as I listen to Dr. Uh, Routers and Dr. Uh, Kasachkin speak, it occurs to me that I am the least um, logical of the speakers here today, so I should tell you a little bit about why the Open Society Foundations cares about the health and rights of people who use drugs and why we also care about drug policies. So really quickly, um, the way that we conceive of open society um, is a democracy where every citizen is included, where every person gets to participate in democracy. And you can see why um, for people like Mark Zuckerberg, like Bill Gates, this is not that complicated. But when we're talking about people who are part of an ethnic minority, uh, part of a sexual minority, people who use drugs, people with mental health issues, that becomes a little bit more complicated. So we care about the health and rights of people who use drugs because we believe that they need to be included in a truly democratic society. We also care about drug policy because we understand that a lot of democratic crises happen when governments try to solve a particular social problem and they do it in the wrong way. And the first um, example that comes to mind for that, of course, is terrorism, where um, they have taken what they have identified as a problem and all of a sudden we have instability in lots of different countries and lots of different regions in the world and hundreds of thousands of people dying. Um, the war on drugs is very similar um, to this. We, um, I don't know if anybody here is from the Latin America region, but in the Latin America region, a lot of problems are exacerbated by the way that the U.S. has decided to enforce their war on drugs. Um, on that southern border. Um, and of course, um, I appreciated that uh, Professor Rutter noted how a lot of the fentanyl is coming from China because the pretext of what's happening in the southern border of the United States, which is to try to stop uh, drugs from flowing north, really um, is specious when you look now at how a lot of the fentanyl is coming from China and there's very little happening um, in terms of the southern border that is related to our overdose crisis. So, I wanted to um, to make those two notes before I start my presentation. Um, you have seen a lot of graphs, so I'm just going to go through these really quickly. But just in total numbers, over 70,000 uh, people died in 2007, 2017 uh, from overdose deaths, and that those are really big numbers. Um, that is actually more than at the height of the AIDS epidemic, um, and. So we really need to see it as a fundamental health issue uh, when you compare it with other kinds of epidemics that have caused a lot of deaths. Um, those numbers are pretty striking. Um, the deaths are occurring among rural and urban communities and across racial groups, um, and that's really important to note because a lot of the um, a lot of the rhetoric around the overdose crisis has been a lot gentler than when we were talking about the crack epidemic of the 80s because it is seen as a white person's uh, problem. But really, um, these overdose deaths are happening all over. Um, Dr. Rauter already noted that um, it's not just um, opioids, it's also polysubstance abuse, and that's relevant because really you can put fentanyl in anything. Um, it doesn't just have to go inside other opioids, it can go into any kind of drugs. 
um, and the fentanyl con contamination is really um, one of the issues, but a lot of the people who are overdosing have more than one drug in their system. Um, and I say that also because you have to identify the problem in order to really target your solution. And in the US, when they talk about the opioid crisis, they really are missing already one of the steps. It's an overdose crisis. It is not an opioid crisis, um, necessarily, when you're talking about multiple drugs. Um, so this is just, again, another statistic that talks about, uh, about the uh, people um, spread out over different ages, different genders. Um, and Professor Kasachkin, Dr. Kasachkin already also uh, spoke about uh, the different reasons uh, why this is happening. The causes are complex, they're multifaceted. Um, it, it started in economically depressed areas, but it's also happening in big uh, cities that have um, a lot of economic stimulus, but among groups that are not um, doing as well. So uh, among people with high unemployment in big cities, um, it's, you also see this. And all these people have very little access to services. That is a fundamental common um, cause um, when you look at the people who are dying um, of overdose. Um, Again, uh, Dr. Kasachkin spoke a little bit about harm reduction, but what I really want to note here is that we know what are the evidence-based solutions. And we know because there's been lots of research around what works for people who use drugs, around what works for people who um, go through what some call problematic drug use, what works for people who um, have addictions. Um, we know this. Um, it is not rocket science. Every time I hear a politician talk about how difficult it is to solve the overdose crisis, I just think they're not trying particularly hard because there is a ton of research um, about what is evidence-based um, in terms of uh, helping solve the overdose crisis. So harm reduction, yes. Uh, that's needle and syringe exchange programs. That's safe consumption sites, it's uh, medication-assisted treatment, um, which would include easing methadone restrictions. Um, it's incredibly hard to have a methadone clinic in the United States, and it requires people to go daily. There is low-threshold methadone in other countries, and they have seen very good results with that. There's no reason why in the United States we couldn't possibly have that if our priorities were a little different. Uh, providing buprenorphine, buprenorphine waivers is also a big one. Right now there is um, a group of people motivated to allow pharmacists to prescribe uh, buprenorphine. As you can imagine, there's a lot of pushback on that, but that's something that could easily be done. Naloxone, but not just naloxone, naloxone given to peers, not just given to police officers and to EMTs, but actually to the people who are um, in the best position to rescue their friends. And Good Samaritan laws, because of course we still have issues with people being charged when they're next to somebody who has overdosed, um, and that means that they tend to not call for help. Um, so that's a pretty important piece also of any naloxone distribution program. Um, and there's wraparound services, which are also evidence-based. Housing, housing has been shown um, to stabilize a person even in the absence of absolutely anything else. Even if the person is still using drugs, even if the person still has some mental health issues, if you provide them with stable housing, it stabilizes that particular individual. Uh, mental health services, of course, a financial safety net, um, and other supportive services um, are really 
they are evidence-based um, things that can help um, the overdose crisis. But in the U.S., as you all may know, we have something of an irrational fear of a social service safety net. Um, Actually, I should revise that and say it's not irrational. It is quite rational when you look at the roots of how this started. When we used to provide a social safety net, it was for a particular group of people. When we started becoming really hostile to that social safety net, it was because it was including other racial groups and other um, immigrants from other countries. So there is a a root uh, cause for our hostility to providing social services in the United States, and racism is a big part of it. So what we have done, instead of the evidence-based thing, is two main things. One of them, supply restrictions. Um, and again, um, uh, Dr. Kasachkin and Dr. Router have spoken a little bit about, the, about this. Um, there's guidance to stop prescribing opioids, so telling doctors don't give people opioids, um, even if they're in pain. Um, there's guidance and regulations to wean patients off opioids or limit the amount of time people are prescribed opioids. So you will see now guidance to some dentists um, when they're pulling teeth to say, only give them three days' worth. Um, so there's no, there's no patient-centered approach anymore because this guidance is supposed to apply to everybody the same. It doesn't matter whether your pain threshold is different. It doesn't matter whether your operation was more complicated. It doesn't matter whether you have some other co-occurring conditions that make your pain more unbearable. Um, that is not the point of this guidance. The point of this guidance is to reduce the amount of opioids that people generally get. Um, it also requires people who have um, things like transportation issues to constantly be going to the drugstore to complete their to fill their prescription rather than be given like a month supply they'll be given like a one week supply so it has a disparate impact on different individuals these particular guidelines they are not patient centered they are centered on the idea of reducing the supply um, there's also regulations to limit the, uh, uh, well, there's a national database of people who need and use opioids, which means that when you go to the doctor and if you have a particular health condition, your doctor is already looking at you and wondering if you are what they would call drug-seeking, um, which puts you in a very disadvantaged uh, position in terms of being able to access health care. Uh, because once a doctor identifies you as somebody who is drug seeking, you will not get good health care. They will not look at your actual condition. Um, they will see you as somebody who's going to create a problem for them. Um, there's also limits on the number of revivals with naloxone that is um, becoming an increasingly popular uh, uh, position that police departments have. They'll revive you three times, and if you still haven't learned your lesson, they will allow you to die. I mean, it is absolutely horrific, but this is part of what um, the government has decided that they have to do to address this, rather than implement um, the evidence-based approach. Uh, the second kind of general box of approaches are criminal justice interventions. Uh, because while in the U.S. we are very hostile to spending money on services, we are very generous when it comes to uh, spending money on criminal justice. So 
The prosecution of doctors is extremely popular. Uh, people are going to jail because they have been identified as somebody who's overprescribing. Um, there's a prosecution of pharmaceutical companies, and of course, um, in some ways that needed to happen because there were some unethical um, and illegal activities that were happening there. But the focus on prosecuting these pharmaceutical companies is a little bit misguided because they're only going to uh, fix part of the problem. Um, and then there's felony murder charges for assisting um, an overdose and mandated treatment. Um, and I can tell you a little bit more about the mandated treatment, but um, once the question and answer uh, session comes in. But um, essentially what I want to say is that this is a repurposing of laws that were meant to assist people in crisis and using them to force into treatment people who may either not be ready for that treatment or who may not be appropriate for a particular type of treatment. Because there is very little treatment in the United States and, and even less of it that is evidence-based, when you're forcing people into treatment, chances are that you're forcing them into something that is not well targeted to their needs. You may be forcing somebody who is Jewish into a Christian-based uh, prayer treatment program. You may be forcing somebody who is um, a user of heroin into a program that works better for people who use amphetamines. Um, so there is that kind of mismatch between the health needs of individuals and what the government has decided to do. I'm, I'm going to leave it there, uh, but just essentially to say that mandated treatment really doesn't work, um, it's not evidence-based, it's not patient-centered, it focuses on the drugs rather than on the person, and it's ripe for abuse. We have documented a number of human rights abuses um, in mandated treatment, and again, I'll be happy to tell you um, a little bit about that later on. Thank you all. Um, good, no good evening, everyone, and thank you for the introduction, uh, John. Um, I think I'm going to start by saying we've, we're, we're many of us saying similar things, so I'm going to skip over anything that I might have in my slides which would repeat what the others said, um, because they've certainly given a great overview of the overdose crisis. Um, but I'm going to use a few different conceptual categories than they did. As Dr. Collins said when he introduced me, I'm a political theorist. And my original talk, he said, he said I, it was much too much about theory and government and citizenship. So I've made this much more practical. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason that I raised my hand when he asked, have you been affected by the overdose crisis? isn't because necessarily I've been personally affected, although I have been affected by the war on drugs um, in the sense that my son's in prison right now for drug use, but that's methamphetamines. But because the work, um, I mean, the, what I would call the false narrative of the opioid crisis is, is directly affecting access to medical opioids. Um, around the world, as well as access to opioids for patients in the U.S. And um, these are people who've been stable on opioids 
for years and years who were, I hesitate to use this word, but I haven't come up with another one. If someone has a, a good one, that would be great. But legitimate pain patients. In other words, patients who've been stable on medical opioids for chronic conditions for a long time. And I actually really am going to challenge, hopefully in the Q&A, um, the narrative that because prescription opioids were made so available through the aggressive marketing of the pharmaceutical companies and got patients hooked on, um, on opioids that once those were cut, they went to the illicit market. The evidence just shows that's not the case, and I'll, I'll just mention a few statistics. But So I raise my hand because it's directly affecting the rights of patients to medical opioids around the world. And we're really seeing that chilling effect in our advocacy. We'd made quite a lot of progress in access to opioids for medical purposes, and now it's being really rolled back because of what's being called the American opioid crisis. So I sort of feel like a midwife who's telling a mother in labor, sorry, but you're going to have three kids um, instead of just one, because there's, there, there are three opioid crises, only one of which is the overdose crisis. And there's one dysfunctional parent, which at least is the uh, war on drugs. Um, so this is the first crisis, which is the one that I work on mostly in my job um, as the advocacy officer for the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care. And this very peculiar map, uh, which shows the bloated North American um, continent and pretty much the rest of the world except for Europe, which is normal size, quote unquote, as just really thin lines depicts the morphine, um, opioid equivalents of morphine that's available in those countries. And in fact, um, more than 5 billion people in the world, that's about 67 to 70%, live in countries where the per capita consumption of opioids for medical care, and that's not just palliative care for cancer, it's also mental health, obstetrics, post-surgery, um, all the reasons controlled medicines need to be available is less than 3% of what's considered adequate. That's why those countries um, in Latin America and Africa are actually like thin lines. And, and Asia's actually one of the worst countries in terms of average daily doses of access, of adequate access to medicines. Um, so the fact that the North America is bloated doesn't mean that that's, they have really good access. It means that there's obviously an overconsumption of those medicines in the U.S., but not necessarily for medical purposes, which is what complicates the narrative. And politicians, as most of you probably know, and certainly the media, don't like complex narratives. But this is a complex narrative. And if you don't break it down into its component parts, which the previous speakers have certainly done with the parts of it, then you're going to get the wrong picture that's going to affect patients like my, the ones I work for um, really uh, negatively. 
So what I've tried to do with these three crises is just break it down into three categories. The affected population, the causes, really, really broad overview, nothing fine-grained there, and the visibility, because I think the visibility is really important in terms of, of which narrative gets policy traction, even if it's wrong. So the crisis of access, unfortunately, has really low visibility, even though the affected population is more than 70%, well, 65% of the world to be statistically accurate. And the main causes are untrained health personnel, so weak health systems, weak supply chains, because controlled medicines need strong, good supply chains. That doesn't mean they have to be aggressive or restrictive, but they need a good supply chain to prevent diversion. Unduly restricted um, regulations, restrictive, which is a nice way of saying um, aggressive, war on drugs oriented regulations, and historical fear and stigma around opioids, which has been going on basically for the last century. So as I said, low visibility. But the key piece for us is that measures of suffering. And The Lancet did a great commission and report on this, that measures of suffering from this lack of access to opioids have been absent until now. And um, the Lancet Commission has created these measures of suffering. And on our website, we now have a database which you can access for every country in the world that allows you to look at what's called serious health-related suffering in each country that's correlated with diseases. So the second crisis of access is one we really haven't talked about or glossed over tonight, is the crisis of access and the affected populations, as I said in the introduction, are patients who've been stable on opioids for medical use in the U.S., which is more than 50 million people. Um, they have, according to CDC, so this is American government statistics, basically a 3% addiction rate. Um, and chronic pain patients are the ones who we're mainly talking about. And there's, there's also, and I was surprised to see this number, what are called high-impact pain, um, chronic pain patients. There's 12 million in the U.S. estimated. Um, and they're the ones who are really what I'm calling a new suicide cohort because they don't necessarily, or the statistics are not showing this at all, that they go to the black or gray markets to substitute for the medicines that have been cut off. Because as you'll see as on the slide, it says the causes of that new crisis of access are the contraindicated cut off and tapering in response to the overdose crisis, which, which all of the previous speakers have talked about. Um, but the fact is that the statistics, again, the CDC shows that less than 10% of these patients um, become dependent on opioids. They certainly need them to maintain their quality of life and daily life, but that's really different from being addicted and then having to go to the black market. They're stable on their opioids. And the statistics are also showing that most people who are being treated for prescription opioid disorder do not have a chronic pain 
diagnosis. So that's the reverse of the previous statistic. These, the people who are being treated for prescription drug disorder, which is often, as the previous speaker said, a polypharmacy use, don't have a chronic pain disorder. So the people who are getting punished are the chronic pain patients. And there's quite a movement now. So in terms of the visibility category I was talking about, very low till recently because they were stable on their meds. There was no reason for them to be visible. Now they're organizing and there's quite a, quite a presence on social media and there are organizations like SEAG, which was just um, testifying at the Vienna um, Commission on Narcotic Drugs Intercessional about the effect of the American overdose crisis on chronic pain patients. And this was a cartoon I came across today about how as you see, the doctor says, too many people are dying, the situation's out of control. I kind of thought the opioids were helping you, but right now I have to stop your pain pills. And the patient's going, what did I do? Because, because it's totally affecting them. Um, but this is increasingly subject to the change based on pressures, the media narrative that's unrelated to an individualized assessment as Denise was saying, of each patient's well-being. So one way I think about this, and another category is the category that some of the other speakers alluded to, which is stigma, um, that Purdue marketed OxyContin explicitly as non-addictive because addiction was so stigmatized. It's not morphine, which is stigmatized, and it's not for cancer, which is a stigmatized um, um, disease. Now you've got these multi-billion dollar settlements um, to local, state, and tribal governments, and the more you can increase the stigma around this narrative, the higher your awards are going to be, and these anti-opioid experts like Andrew Kolodny and Prop and those people who, they get enormous fees for testifying in these lawsuits. Kolodny made $500,000, half a million, for testifying in the J&J &J case. So there's a, there's a vested interest in being anti-opioid, and it benefits the quote-unquote recovery industry. So this is the opioid crisis, uh, which I'm not going to talk, the overdose crisis, which I'm not going to talk about, um, because they've done a great job, the previous speakers, in talking about that. And a few policy solutions which are fundamental um, to all of them, and one thing I'm pretty militant about is to mandate the inclusion of all affected populations. That includes patients as well as persons who have drug use disorder in all policy planning. So it's not just a bunch of experts like us, quote unquote, getting together and saying what the good solutions are. Universalized harm reduction, it's been said, upskill all health workers in appropriate medical use of opioids. Eliminate corporate pharma dollars in politics. That's what my original talk was going to be on, and we'll have to have another session on that because I'm going to get waved off the stage. Um, and provide solidarity-based universal health coverage. The counterexample to the American overdose crisis, and I will finish, is Germany. Because Germany has similar prescription rates, the second in the developed quote-unquote world, to the U.S., and no overdose crisis as several of the pre previous speakers said, it's because they have a solidarity-based health system as well as harm reduction that's universalized. So thank you for your attention.
thank you, Catherine, and thank you to all your, our speakers. I am sorry to have put pressure on at the end, but I just wanted to make sure we had enough time for Q&A. So we have about 17 minutes for Q&A, so I will intervene if people start making statements or go on too long, I'm afraid. So just please, who, your name, who you are, and just a, a quick question. So I will take the gentleman up the front there, and then there's a lady and a gentleman, and I'll work backwards from there. So we'll take three at this in this round. <coughs> Um, I'm Daniel. I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Thank you all for your valuable contributions. I just wanted to ask, as citizens, right, where does that leave us? Because these are great policies, and I'm sure a lot of the people in this room who came here to listen to them agree. But, like, the same ideological drive behind all of the policies is elected by the minority of the population that is now being exploited in the opioid crisis. So by the time I'm old enough to run for office, five of my friends will probably have already overdosed. What can we do in the short term to actually enact policy change beyond a community gardening project? Sure. Okay. Uh, um, there's a gentleman there in the middle, and then the lady just behind him, please. Well, hello. My name is Arturo Montejo. I'm from Colombia. Currently, I'm a research assistant at, in the health policy department. And uh, well, my question is is related with you, you tell us about the tell us about the the evidence, and especially in one of your presentation, there are uh, two ex presidents of Colombia actually in the commission in this drug commission, and why is if if we have the 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 evidence is not implemented in in the different countries because well, we have we know what can be done, but uh, the, just the current presidents, they, it's like they don't care about it. So why is happening that and how, I don't know, what, what, what is necessarily just to, to have like an, an integrate and harmony uh, policy well, with the most important governments and actually because it's affecting a lot of Latin American countries. Sure. Okay. Hi, my name is Cassandra. I'm from the United States. I study a master's in health and international development here at the LSE. I'm also a future doctor, hopefully. Um, my question is, I come from a, a state that's heavily run by conservative politicians, the state of Florida. Um, it was very difficult to lobby for even private needle exchanges. How would I go about actually arguing for these policies that I largely agree with all of you, but how do I argue for them in a way that gets people who are on the opposite political spectrum to actually agree with me? Sure. Okay. Uh, one, one more quick, quick question, if it's quick, and we can then start back to the speakers. Hi there. Uh, Johnny, I'm doing a master's at the LSE. Um, so it's clear from all of your talks that the underlying cause was the, of this problem was the failed war on drugs. And building on, on previous questions, there was some fantastic evidence in favor of why we should end the war on drugs and promote harm reduction. But as we know, <clears throat> the war on drugs was brought in not by evidence, but from emotion, from fear, okay? How do we, and if, unless we back up our arguments with emotion, we will not win this struggle. We will not end the war on drugs. So how do we make the argument and win the argument through emotion, not just evidence? Sure. Okay, well, let's start over here on the right with Catherine, maybe, and just work through. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm just going to answer one one of the questions because it's it seems it seems like you you all had how do we change this because we see the sense in this. One of my answers to that, because I was trying to get at that through the visibility uh, domain I was bringing up, is to bring the stories uh, and the faces of affected populations, individual patients and providers and families to the politicians. It's one of the things that's really driven the American narrative is these stories of the families who've lost people. Um, even if it doesn't tell all the story of the coroner's verdict and how many substances were in that person's blood when they died, etc., it's all under the blanket of the overdose. But that, exactly as you said, with the emotional thing is what's gotten the attention. But we need to bring the other crises, the patients of the other crises and the affected populations of the other crises to the politicians. That's my two cents. Um, I, I think these are questions about uh, political strategy. I'm not the one to answer. <laughs> but but as, as I'll push you a bit there, Peter. As, as an academic who's worked in this field for, for okay. a number of so, decades. Okay, so that, let, let me rain on the parade. <laughs> that, that is my function in life. Um, uh, so I'm a harm reduction advocate. I do want, though, to be an awareness of the limitations of harm reduction. So one jurisdiction which is very dedicated to harm reduction programs, which has just about everything on the, the list, is British Columbia, in particular Vancouver. British Columbia is the jurisdiction in the North America which has the highest overdose death rate from, from opioids. And it, what it points to is not that harm reduction isn't helpful, but it's not going to solve this problem. They could do more. Their heroin-assisted therapy is quite limited. I'm a great fan of heroin-assisted therapy. But do note that in Switzerland, where it has been available for 20 years, only about 10% of users will, access the pro will use the program. I think we have to accept that harm reduction is an important innovation, but much more is needed. And I do not know what that is. But if we simply limit ourselves to safe consumption sites for which the evidence is very weak, heroin-assisted therapy for which the evidence is good but the effects are limited, and to needle exchange which only deals with a part of this and the others on the list, I think we will face very much the same problem that we have now. So that's my reign. Um, I, I want to answer the questions that were asked, but I also really want to fight back against this idea of safe consumption sites not having a strong evidence base. So let, let me let me address the first one, um, and then maybe we'll have time for, for the other one, um, doctor. So I think that one of the things that young people do much better than people our age is um, to have an intersectional read on things and to really um, smell the simple storyline for what it is, which is um, usually... Um, not accurate and just um, somebody trying to sell you something that's not quite right. Um, so I think one of the things that you can do is every time the government tells you we're going to solve this with X, like when we're going to solve this once we prosecute all of these horrible pharmaceutical companies, you know that is not right and you need to ask more questions. What else is there? What What is the story that I'm not being told? Because these things make for neat packages that are not quite accurate. Um, 
one of the things, unfortunate things that has happened with the overdose crisis is that pain patients and um, people who use drugs for other reasons have been pitted against each other, and there's like the good uh, victim of this and the bad victim of this. And I really want you all to think about what about the well-being of people with addiction? What about the well-being of people who use drugs? Not just what about the well-being of people who need these uh, medications because of cancer. Um, everybody uh, is human. Psychic pain is just as real as uh, physical pain. And you will hear the stories of people who will tell you about why they use drugs and what it meant to them that there was harm reduction that saved their lives, that kept them alive long enough to see them to the other side of their drug addiction and their drug use. And I think that that's something else that you can do, find out about the stories of recovery. Because there are a lot of people in the US who still feel that their loved one is better dead than addicted. And it, that is just so, I mean, it's so counter to everything that as a human rights um, attorney I believe in, but also it's so wrong um, that people don't recover and there is recovery for a lot of people on the other side of addiction if you get them the right help and if you get them the right services. So I would say definitely look at hopeful stories of recovery um, and try to use those to explain the reason why all of these harm reduction procedures need to be supported and need to be maintained in order to allow people to get um, to the other side. So. Um, that I think that's a little bit of how you win the argument uh, for emotion. Um, well, thank you for your questions. Uh, we have little time, but let me say, in, in uh, working on trying to change the policies, uh, work should be both top-down and uh, efforts should be bottom-up. Um, efforts at the top are efforts uh, with the United Nations and with the conventions. As you know, the conventions currently ha have established prohibition or, to, to, to be correct, I think I should say, the conventions are interpreted uh, as, as prohibition. But the preamble to the 1961 convention is that these conventions regulating the international um, drug control regimes uh, are, are for the welfare and the well-being of patients and of people. So originally these conventions were there so to make sure that people have access. And then the fear from diversion and various interests uh, have led to the opposite situation where, as you heard from Catherine, there's very little or far insufficient access for people who need these uh, medications. Uh, in the world, and at the same time, all the efforts and billions of dollars have been spent on, on repressive policies that are um, ineffective and, and harmful. So first, we tra have to try and change that at the top, and this is very difficult. The Global Commission may be one of the voices that is somehow heard because it has high political representation and because most of these people are, I mean, highly respected. And yes, there are two former Colombian presidents, Cesar Gaviria and, and Juan Santos. Uh, and you've seen in Colombia how it takes a change in administration to actually ruin what the predecessor uh, has been doing. But that's, that's what we see in politics almost everywhere. 
And so as an advocate, uh, as an activist, you just have to uh, take it that your job will always be to restart from the beginning with the next administration. And it's a bit of a Sisyphus uh, effort, but that's how it is currently. At the top, I'm very pessimistic about the, the situation. If you have U.S., China, Russia, Iran, you know, on, on, on the one side, uh, I, I just don't see how we can move. Uh, on the other hand, uh, let me say that there are two reasons not to be discouraged. One is that if you look back 10 years ago at where we were and where we are now, I think we've made more progress than we may think. Health, I mean, many people consider issues around drugs as health issues. I, I, feel, I feel there is an over, even an over-medicalization of the issue sometimes, and people say all people who use drugs are, are patients, which is totally wrong. Dependence is a disease, but 85% of the people who use drugs control their use. And, are, and feel well. I'm a French citizen, so I drink wine every day. I don't think I'm, I'm dependent. Uh, I, I control my, my consumption. But um, the second thing is that um, decriminalization is, is moving its way up. And of course, decriminalization and legalization in many places now of cannabis is helping. But there's also a risk that people will somehow concede and say, okay, we go for cannabis, we will not go for the rest, and we'll remain tough on the rest, which doesn't make sense because uh, decriminalization is, is a, an issue of principle. It isn't issue, an issue of the substance. And the regulating is also an, a question of principle. Uh, of removing for removing the black market. It's not a question of, of substance. There are ways of regulating more dangerous drugs uh, than less dangerous drugs, just like the society knows how to regulate more dangerous risks than less dangerous risks. Uh, and the, the last point I'd like to make is that we can still make a lot of progress at local level, mm -hmm. at local level. Um, and that I have seen, and, and that starts with uh, opening the debate, as also Catherine has said, opening the discussion with people. Um, and, and that can progressively change uh, the minds uh, or the hearts, uh, because it may, the conversation may start with the emotion. And then at local level, I have seen across the world examples of cities, mm -hmm. yes? municipalities that would take initiatives, like the diversion program for police in Seattle, like now Itaca wanting or about to open a safe injection room. And let me join with uh, Denise in saying safe injection rooms are very effective and there is strong uh, evidence for that. Uh, I, I how, somehow I said in my presentation they are the, not the only solution, and they will be insufficient to, let's say, the cocaine fentanyl epidemic that we say, we see. But safe injection rooms are absolutely needed and urgently needed throughout the United States. Can I, can I prod Peter? Because I, I know you, you, you don't mind. Um, but I, but let, let, let's, from an academic's perspective, um, I, I've, I have a couple of points to raise, I guess. Um, the firstly is, I, I agree that none of this, and I don't think anyone thinks these would be sufficient, but 
Coming to this topic early on, what struck me was harm reduction was one of the interventions which did what it said on the tin. Right? It, pre <laughs> it prevented the spread of HIV. It was, it was getting people into services which were making their lives better. It was saving lives. We can't say the same about any supply interventions really on, a, on, a, on maybe at specific levels. On development interventions, it's a very tough discussion, as you know. Um, so maybe just elaborate a bit on that. The other one was, uh, I think, the Swiss ca case on heroin-assisted treatment. And I know you've done work scenario planning this in Baltimore and other places. But my sense from talking to Swiss policymakers is there is a conscious decision to restrict the expansion of heroin-assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. So just let me deal with the, the last one, which is easy. I mean, I, w I did some work for the Swiss uh, Office of Public Health and I probed on that and was, I, I came away 10 years ago with a strong impression that there was no restriction. It was a lack of demand for this, which is fascinating. I mean, heroin-assisted therapy is uh, a program in which if you are a, 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 have been dependent on heroin for at least two years and have failed in a couple of methadone programs, which describes almost every heroin user in Switzerland, um, then you are eligible for a program which, in which you will receive essentially free heroin and as much as you want if you turn up twice a day at a clinic. Um, Why would somebody turn up if they're just going to be turned away? Okay, so... Sorry, I, I, what they need is to be legalized as soon as possible. Uh, Andrea, so Andrea. And all these other things don't end their lives for them and they're not behind bars for decades. And you will know that and you're great allies, but when it comes down to it, it's like, John, you've excluded me from this conversation. You've known me for years. Why have you done that? I've been sat here. You know I've been sat here. I've got something to contribute. I, I'm sorry the if I didn't... The thing that we need is to be legalised citizens. That is it. Okay, thank you, Andrew. I didn't... I apologise if... Okay, apologise if I didn't see your hand up earlier. I didn't actually see you because it's a blind spot here. Um, but let's continue on the point that we had. Fine, okay. Um, so it, it seems like a very attractive um, program, and yet most heroin users do not avail themselves of it, and I think there is a sense of loss of autonomy that goes with, uh, with being in this program. And I, I, you know, I, my, my original view was the Swiss rules were so rigid that you, you, know, you, you had to do it on, you had to consume it on your own and leave the building in 15 minutes, give up your... Uh, driver's license, etc., and then I went to the Netherlands, where it's mostly smoked, and they have exactly the opposite rules, where you have to stay in the program for half an hour, and you get to hang around with your friends, who are also in the program, and again, there's very little take-up, and sort of on basis of modest evidence, I thought that this is just a program that, that has inherent limits because it threatens the autonomy of people who value their autonomy. Um, but let me go back to supply-side interventions, and I agree that harm reduction, it's very, I mean, there has been an effort by economists, and I'm trained as an economist, economists to come up with clever ways of showing that there are adverse effects of various harm reduction programs. The, the notion being that if you reduce harm, you include, increase the attractiveness of the behavior, and there are occasional papers which cause a great stir, uh, and none of which I think have held up over time, basically it's very hard to identify any adverse consequence of harm reduction, and it's very hard on the other side 
to identify any supply control program that doesn't have predictable and substantial uh, adverse effects, which you trade off against very uncertain positive effects. So I am a harm reduction advocate and a so supply-side reductionist. That is to say, I'm not anti-prohibition. I go through the arguments for, for legalization. I am agnostic on that. But in a context of prohibition, I think very mild enforcement is the optimal amount of enforcement that will minimize. You get most of the benefits of prohibition just from the prohibition itself. Additional enforcement does little to restrict availability or raise prices and causes, can cause substantial harm. So I'm an agnostic on legalization, an advocate for harm reduction, and a reductionist on supply reduction. Denise, you wanted to jump in? Um, well, I mean, I just want to point out that the thing with um, heroin-assisted treatment is that it is generally seen as the last step in the harm reduction conveyor belt, if you will. Um, so you can't look at these harm reduction strategies individually um, and think that it is going to solve the issue because, again, every drug user is different. Um, every type of drug use is different. People's circumstances are different, and different things work for different people. Um, for those of for whom methadone or buprenorphine works, that might be preferable to, ha again, having to go, as you noted, every single day to a clinic, sometimes twice a day, in order to get your heroin. Um, and the strictures around that are very complicated. So it's not ideal for every individual, but also it is you have to see it in the context of other harm reduction things. Some people are not going to need that. Some people are just going to need a meal and syringe exchange program. Um, so it's important to look at this 10% this uptake in, in Switzerland. I don't know that much about the Swedish model. I can tell you, for example, in Copenhagen, it is a very small heroin-assisted treatment program, but that's because they have so many other things in the beginning that work for people. That particular program is really reserved for for those folks for whom methadone or buprenorphine or everything else that they tried didn't work for them. So you must have failed, and I hate that word, failed, um, at treatment um, and every other type of intervention before you're allowed into the heroin-assisted treatment program. And, and you can see why people wouldn't want to do that, because you really, your entire life then is around that particular treatment. You have to go twice a day, every day, to this particular clinic, which may be hours away from where you live. You cannot keep a job, um, et cetera. And this is why talking to drug users is so important, because it's very clear when you talk to them why they don't like this particular program. Um, if, they, if it's the only thing that works for them and it saves their lives, they will do it. But it is not necessarily what they would choose if they had a different choice to make. I'm just yeah, just to say, a, a, a quick point. Uh, uh, because there may be, may be some misunderstanding about around harm reduction. Uh, to me, methadone treatment, buprenorphine, or heroin-assisted therapy, this is not harm reduction. This is treatment of dependence, period. Dependence is a chronic disease, and uh, methadone is the treatment. treatment. <laughs> yes? Uh, so a, a needle exchange program will reduce the potential harms. Uh, methadone is, is harm-reducing, but primarily what we talk about here is treatment. So you have a chronic disease, you take a pill. You have hypertension, you take antihypertensive pills. You have diabetes, you take insulin. You are dependent on heroin, you have methadone. And those patients who feel uncomfortable 
uh, on methadone may be eligible for another therapy, and that is heroin-assisted therapy. And to me, that flows naturally and simply. I, I see no, no problem here. It's, it's, a, it's management of treatment. I see all harm reduction as treatment because part of the issue with drug use has to do with the way that people are marginalized and disconnected from society because they happen to take a particular substance. So I think even of needle and syringe exchange program as being therapeutic in that it increases that contact, it, it, it makes you uh, have to engage with somebody Fine. else. I, I agree with that. Use. What I'm saying is there are some people who are not dependent True. who need harm reduction True. in order to reduce the risk, let's say, of HIV, whereas people who are dependent need treatment, period. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to be the bad person here, but we, we have well run out of time. We're actually 10 minutes over time. I am really sorry to the audience. I find it extremely interesting that we started, a, we have had a discussion on the opioid crisis, and it has rapidly gravitated towards a discussion on harm reduction. I think there's something interesting in that in itself. I'm going to give the last word to Catherine, though, because I think I owe her that at least. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to address the many questions about what can we do and say briefly that there's long-term solutions and short-term solutions. And what all of the presenters, including mine, our presentations pointed to was the fact that the people who are dying in the overdose crisis, and that's why I, put, I forgot to put my reference slide up, but there's, there's references in this that talk about this, are generally people, and I think you mentioned it, Denise, um, it, it's where there's very low social capital, and there's actually some really interesting literature on this that's just coming out, the more fine-grained studies of who's dying, and it's in places where um, there's, that really suffered from the 2008 crash. For instance, where there's high unemployment, a lot of pain. I read an article today about how it's now being correlated in the US with obesity as well as aging. A lot of veterans, pe uh, people who were employed in heavy industry for years and years and do have chronic pain as and so there's there's and there's no access to health services that's the other piece so the long-term solution is to work for societies where solidarity and universal health care are the ethical principles that um, and and to revive citizenship in in the US there's this complete lack of citizenship which is is driving these awards to the pharmaceutical companies and blaming private industry instead of the government for their lack of regulation. But as I said, we're going to have to have another panel on that because that's, that's the governance so issue start. which is at stake here. So there's the short-term stuff which we've talked about. Then there's the long-term stuff where you act as citizens in solidarity with all the access groups, lack of access groups in affected populations we've talked about, and have them on the stage, the affected populations. Yeah. Okay, well, we, I can say in advance we are actually in discussions with the Global Commission about having a panel on regulation in the next term, so around the report about scheduling, so there will be more discussions on this, and we hope to have more audience participation. Take advantage of the speakers being here, harass them afterwards, ask them questions. I want dinner. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>